All right, I think we're live streaming. So, um, ladies, my privilege and honor to be with you this evening and for everybody who's streaming, all the men who are watching their boys and their girls at home, right, and taking care of everybody. Maybe we could open with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. You are our life, our love, the light of our lives, and the light of the world. And what a joy and privilege it is to gather together in the middle of the week and to consider your voice in our lives and the words that you have to speak to us, words that give life and show us how great the cross is, Lord, um, how great we are as sinners, and yet how much greater is the atonement that you have provided for us and how sufficient and wonderful your word is, Lord. We just thank you for what you've given us, and we just ask for your help this evening. Lord Jesus, would you become greater, and would we become less, and would you just help us to understand our God-breathed Bible and also the words uh, that you've given to Timothy and to us in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. So thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, ladies, and thank you for everybody who's showing up for Lagos this evening. And we're starting our first chapter in FOF, our God-breathed Bible, and our focal text for this evening is coming from 2 Timothy, which many of you have walked through this summer in book club. And uh, it has become dear to us. The elders have been walking through this in the mornings and we get together and we're praying through 2 Timothy as well. And in the same way that the Lord has brought our church through a Titus period, I believe he's bringing us through a 2 Timothy period. So more than just the focal point for the text and for FOF, this is really where we're at as a church. And our focus this evening is, you know, can we trust our Bibles and why do we sort of exhort you on a regular basis to spend time in the Word, to be encouraged in the Word, to be trained in the Word of God? Why is that central to our church and our lives, which quite frankly is not the same at many churches? I was talking with my boys this afternoon and the question you know, comes up, why do we spend so much time focusing on the Word of God? Why is that central to what we do on Sundays? Um, so we're going to look at 2 Timothy this evening, and try and understand it big picture, and then focus in on Paul's statement, which we know, and hopefully uh, it will be an encouragement to you. And so, uh, just to get your brains warmed up, I've got a little bit of Timothy trivia, and so if you're here, ladies, I expect you, you know, loud amens, you know, this is your opportunity and to shout out the answers to these. So could I get my first slide? Is that doable? <laughs> oh! The Lord is great and I am small. After I um, sent... Okay. We'll do the best we can. Okay, can you, can you check, because I sent it this afternoon to the AV link, is that doable while, while I work on this end? Okay, all right, well let's warm our brains up. Timothy was born in Ephesus, Laodicea, or Lystra? Got three choices there, Ephesus, Laodicea, or Lystra? Lystra is correct in, in Galatia, and that is in Acts chapter 14 and also 16. Okay, Timothy was Jewish, Greek, or both? Both. He was a 50-50 bar, right? And so, uh, and you know, I think part of Paul's love for him obviously was the faith that he had, but also he was really the first generation and what he writes about in Ephesus of someone who was neither Jew nor Greek, but he was about Christ. He was what the Lord had brought together and that was something novel and new in the 40s and 50s and 60s AD because it began really within the Jewish community and Gentiles were outsiders and Paul was the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, but he also took a fair amount of shade for, for doing that, right? Okay. Timothy was a pastor in Antioch, Rome, or Ephesus? Ephesus. 
Ephesus. In fact, he probably was a pastor in a number of places because he was sent out into those places. But um, Ephesus, as far as 2 Timothy is being written, Paul is in prison in Rome and he's writing to him while he is a pastor in Ephesus, having been sent by Paul to take up the ministry in the church plant that Paul had originally started there. Okay, Paul wrote to Timothy, and he wrote the letter of 2 Timothy. He's in prison in Rome, waiting to get his head cut off by uh, Nero. And um, how many years is this after Paul was converted? And how many years was this after the church started? 10 years after the church in Jerusalem started? 25 years after the church in Jerusalem started? Or 35 years? just want to give you an idea of timeline. 35 years. We're in the... So, no, it's good. It's, it's because we're thinking, you know, when was Jesus crucified? Jesus is born around... Zero A.D., right? I mean, I know they call it the common era now, and, but I still like A.D. I'm still old school and politically incorrect. But, you know, that's before Christ. And then after his, you know, lordship and his coming. So anyway, so you're talking about Jesus probably in the area of his ministry starting up age 27, 28, and then to around a very short period of time, maybe three Passovers, three years, you have um, his crucifixion sometime between 30 and uh, 33 AD. Jesus is crucified. Then probably within a year to two years after that time, a year or so, obviously the church gets started, the Pentecost sermon really a month or so afterwards. And then Paul probably within a year of that being converted on the road to Damascus around 33 AD. And so then what we're talking about is um, 65 to 67 AD is when this letter is being written, the last letter that Paul probably wrote that we have in our scriptures. And uh, prior to that, him getting his head cut off. And I just received a text from my lovely and wonderful wife with whom I cannot survive. Pray for her well-being until the Lord takes me home because I probably couldn't find my keys to my car, the medicine cabinet. And Josephine, she just told me, she just sent it, my email. She said it did not send on my computer. So John Yeh was gracious enough to come over and try and help me and dig me out of my computer problems this afternoon. So it just, so you know, it's me. I, I thought I sent it and praise God, my wife ran down to my computer and bailed me out again. Okay, final question. Second Timothy was written to a thriving church and pastor. True or false? You guys can speak loud. I, I don't want to have to turn my hearing aid up. False. Absolutely, right? The context of this letter is Timothy is struggling and so is the church. In fact, thriving, it depends on how you decide to use that term. As far as growth in numbers, the church in Ephesus actually probably was proliferating and growing in numbers. But with that growth, false teachers had come in and they're beating up Timothy and Paul's ministry looks like it's going down the tubes. He's abandoned, as you read the beginning, by everybody pretty well, whether it's people going off to other ministries or they don't want to be associated with him. The end is coming. He's in prison in Rome. Peter's in prison in Rome. And it is becoming embarrassing for Timothy to be associated with Paul. Paul is not popular the gospel is not popular, and all of these other teachers who have come in who are powerful in speaking, charismatic, and gifted in many different worldly ways, and the church probably is growing in numbers, but Timothy is getting a beating, taking a beating, and his heart is starting to grow cold, okay? And he's starting to hesitate as you read through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you start to see 
he's having a hard time. In fact, when you read 1 Timothy, he, he may be having ulcers. He's having stomach problems for which Paul tells him to take a little bit of wine for your stomach, okay? Something medicinal. He doesn't tell him to go and get healed. He doesn't tell him to go see Benny Hinn. He says, you actually need to do something here, but there's more that's being written. And so Paul is actually writing this letter to encourage and exhort Timothy. It's a letter of encouragement and exhortation to his son in the faith and this child of the gospel. And my hope tonight for you is that this will be an encouragement to you. And uh, oh my goodness, ladies, thank you for being gracious and patient with me, your pastor. And dear wife, thank you for bailing me out. Um, Could I have my next slide, please? Okay. When we go through this exegesis sheet, the burden of the exegesis sheet. I'm the creator. So if you've cursed anybody for doing that exegesis sheet, it was me, okay? I hope there's a blessing at the end. And we want to go and rightly understand how does God want us to understand? What's he saying? Not my opinion, your opinion. What's God's opinion and idea? And right from the beginning, I want to just give you up front, where are we going with this passage? 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. And then I'll go back and show you how I got there and you can decide whether I'm a heretic or not. You'll be a good Berean after you've been in your groups and say legit or not legit, okay? But big picture, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. We use it as a proof text to talk about the authority and the inerrancy and the sufficiency of our scriptures. But that's not what the purpose of the text is about, okay? Paul, when we go through it, you're seeing his, his primary reason for writing this text is not to talk about the greatness of scripture, He's caring for the well-being of Timothy's soul. Now the two are related, right? And he's trying to provide a word of exhortation to urge him on in the right direction and encouragement to strengthen him, all right, for someone who's struggling. And, and we get that because in the beginning he says, Timothy, rekindle the flame. Stir, into, stir back into the fire. It means his heart is getting cold and he's starting to veer, right? And so... I'm going to make this claim that the authorial intent here is Paul's exhortation in, in those verses is what you're reading. With Christ's spirit and his word, both. With his spirit and his word, we have everything we need to live our gospel calling in life. Married, single, divorced, ill, sick, thriving, good church, bad church with the Spirit of God, with, the, with His Word in our lives. Everything you need for life and godliness, you have in Christ. Okay? Do we believe it? Okay? The alternative that Paul walks through, as you go through each chapter, you see he does contrasts. Okay? It's Psalm 1, two paths. Blessed is the man. Okay? Psalm 1, and then the other half, the people who are going in the other direction. So Paul, each time as he goes through, he gives examples of people who have strayed from the path, who have walked away from the gospel. They're destructive to themselves. They're destructive to other people. On the outside, they look like they have the form of godliness, okay? And so he's also making the point that without the Spirit of Christ and without His Word, we're going to die, it's as simple as that. We will be deceived. We will deceive others. We will stray from the path. Or maybe we were never on the path in the first place. Whatever it is, without God's word, if we do have his spirit, we just need it minute by minute, moment by moment. Without it, everything is going to crumble. It is everything to the believer. And to support that statement in that 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, we'll see the reason he talks about Scripture and what it is, is he's supporting Timothy. This is why we do what we do. This is why we're with Christ. This is why we believe in Him. This is why Jesus means everything. It stands on the truth of God's Word. Okay, It's the money in the bank from which we write our checks that our Bible is God breathed. Okay? It has come from the mouth of God. And because it's come from the mouth of God, it is trustworthy for everything. For everything. 
It's not 50% as trustworthy. It's not 70% as trustworthy. Every aspect of God's word is trustworthy. It is authoritative. The final authority, nothing to compare, more authoritative than pastors or churches. It is inerrant. It is without error in word and in letter in the original autographs. It is infallible. It does exactly what God says it's going to do. If God says it's going to do something, it will do that. And it is sufficient. Does it say everything we need? How to change the oil in our cars? What color our shirts should be? No. Okay. Should you homeschool your kids? Or should you send them to public school? Does it say that? No. But does it provide you with everything you need for life and godliness? To be pleasing to the Lord. So that at the end of our lives, we can look at the Lord with joy and delight. I was speaking with Ricardo recently and and he was encouraging me and he said, Mark, when they put me in my coffin, he said, really, you know, as I think about it, there's only three people I really care about what their opinions are. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Vanna and Vivi, my daughter. He said, the rest, whatever they thought of me is whatever they thought of me. Okay, and when you add it up of what's most important. And through all this authorial intent, that passage is being given to exhort Timothy to continue in the faith and teaching that he had begun, which is based on God's word. And the idea of continuing is that there's a line and there's a journey, there's a pilgrim's progress. And Timothy, you're starting to veer off. It's an exhortation to continue in the path of the gospel and to continue to walk with Christ. How? By way of his word, okay? If it's not with Christ's word, then you're not walking on the path that Christ is on because Christ is never separate from his word. And that vital connection, he's the vine, we're the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So that's my claim of what this passage really is about as Paul's exhorting Timothy to continue and to remain and to abide in this vital relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and you can't do it without growing in his word. Okay, the two don't exist. Okay, so how did we get there? Can I have my next slide? Really quickly, this is a timeline we went through this just to understand the context. Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen from the grave. He's ministering to the church, to the apostles, and through the power of the Spirit. Their ministry and their words are being written down. But you're at this place 30 years after Jesus has ascended to heaven. The apostles, by and large, are getting killed. Paul and Peter are about to be killed. John is probably one of the few remaining apostles. So that voice of the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and those who are filled by the Spirit and called to give the Word of God, they're starting to fade. And what they have left, what Timothy and the next generation have left are not the apostles, they have the written Word of God. And God's done that for them for a reason. He has had faithful men who he's filled with his Spirit write down his words and the words of Christ for his people. Why? It's for you and I. It's so that the generations that come after would be able to have an objective, authoritative, infallible, inerrant word of God that they could have for themselves for the subsequent generations for the church era until Christ comes again. This is where uh, Timothy's at. Okay, And this is also a time and season where personality, more than the word of the Lord, is coming to bear in the local church, where they're starting to waver in that direction. And what's going to happen very shortly after this letter is finished is Paul's going to get his head cut off, uh, Peter's going to get his head cut off, they're both in jail in Rome, but then within a year or two, in 70 AD, there is going to be a Jewish war and a Jewish revolt, And Titus, General Titus, okay, the son of the Roman emperor, is going to come in and he's going to destroy Jerusalem and he's going to destroy the temple. As Jesus prophesied, Judaism is gone. It will persist through the Pharisees and the rabbis, but the Sadducees and the temple sacrifices, as the Lord promised, gone. There is no mediation through sacrifice. It's only Christ and his word. The curse that Jesus pronounced begins to come to pass in 70 AD 
and the church era is standing on the words of Christ and his spirit once the apostles are gone. And the amazing thing is, is that Christ sustained it in their absence. So that's where we're at. And so Timothy's at this fragile period in time. Can I have my next slide, please? Thank you. All right, just to get an idea of the movement of the church of the light and the gospels, okay? This tiny little purple area above Arabia and Egypt. Do you see that tiny little purple area? I think of the Red Sea, the peace sign, okay? My two fingers. You see the river that's that way. Just a little bit above it is that tiny area. That's Judea. Tiny, tiny, tiny area. Now, we see it in a really big terms, but all of this stuff that the Lord is using to save the world is coming from this tiny little strip of land. It's a Garden of Eden, okay? Just north of it, up in Syria, at the very tip under the next purple ridge, is Antioch the first Gentile church. So it starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, it's working its way north, and then it goes up to Antioch, and they send out the first missionaries. Antioch is the first place that people are called Christians, followers of Christ, and they're the first church that sends Paul and Barnabas out on missions. And then Paul and Barnabas go throughout the Roman Empire, but they go locally. They go all the way through first to the purple area up top, above the ocean there, and that is Galatia. Then they go to a place that's called Asia, except there's no Chinese people or Korean there, okay? They're actually Turks. But Asia Minor, where there's Ephesus, okay, is in that area. And then across the Aegean, you come to Greece in this area, and then you see over here Italy, the boot. Do you see the boot? The Italian boot. And then further over is Spain. And so these are all the areas as you go through where Paul planted churches. Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, going to the ends of the Roman Empire, starting from this tiny church in Jerusalem. And he is now in jail in in Rome. Okay? And he is fulfilling the Great Commission. And he's writing from Rome, in prison in Rome, under Nero. And he's writing to Ephesus, which is over in this Asia area over here. Right? This is, this is the place where Eric and Angela went in their honeymoon, right? Did you make it to Ephesus? No. Boo. Crete was a lot more, and Mykonos was probably a lot prettier, right? Anyways, it's over there in Asia Minor in Turkey on the coast, and he's writing the letter to him. That's where he is. That's where Timothy is. Can I have my next slide, please? Okay, so we want to see, we saw historical context, okay, because we want to see where this is, and we want to look at Timothy now, okay? This book of Timothy, and I encourage you all, as you go through these epistles, you can probably read them in 15 or 20 minutes, okay? Read it from beginning to end, whether you understand it or not. And you go through, and people say, well, I don't really understand what it's talking about. That's okay. That's okay. All right? You want to see what the big picture is and you want to read it as you received it. It was read as a letter to Timothy Goddard. He read it from beginning to end. And then, in all likelihood, he handed it off to others, whether it was the elders of the church and it may have been read together in somebody's home in the local church and they read it from beginning to end. And as you go, you see that every letter has a beginning, middle, and end. Okay? And so when you see the verses, you don't want to take it out of context. You want to understand where is this in the letter. And we would say, what's the purpose of this letter? This letter, as we said, it's an exhortation and encouragement to a young pastor who is getting beaten up and his heart is growing cold and he's starting to drift, maybe, or he's at least under threat to drift away from Christ and the gospel in favor of all the popular things that are happening at the time. And if you look at the core purpose, 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 14, if you look at those verses... And I'm going to summarize it with this one verse. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now what's the deposit he's talking about? A deposit like someone putting money or a treasure in a safe that needs to be taken care of. And in the bigger scheme of things, it's his faith. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is what is being chipped away at. And Paul is asking him to fan into flames the gift that was given to you. Stir up the spirit that's within you. This thing that you have, the gospel, this faith that you have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is more precious than silver and gold. 
And that is really the focal point and the reason for the exhortation. So as you go through the chapters, I'm going to go through it quickly for you, okay? Chapter 1, this is just how I've organized it. It's not the gospel, but it's Mark Chin's perspective. Paul begins by giving thanks to the Lord. Every letter that you go through, you read, there's a recurrent pattern. Paul says who he is. I'm an apostle. I'm speaking on behalf of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? I'm not a pastor. I am speaking on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. These words are Christ's words to you, Timothy. Okay? And then he gives thanks for Timothy's faith. He does this in all his epistles. He gives thanks and prays, and he jumps up and down and gets excited, and he's filled with joy and encouragement that Timothy knows our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he's saved, that Christ dwells in Timothy. This, even in prison, is what gives Paul incredible joy. And so that first chapter is a celebration and a praise and giving thanks of the gospel gift, the gift of the gospel. And it makes us think, how precious is the gospel to us? Well, for Paul, it's everything. His last, think about his last words. What are the last things you're going to say to the people you love? Is it about their salvation? Okay. So he starts with, this is what the gospel gift is. Chapter 2, he moves on to what the gospel calling is. And he's reminding Timothy as he goes, what's most important, right? If you're going to die and you're going to talk to someone, you want to talk to them about what's most important. You're going to talk to them about, you know, what the score was in the Golden State Warriors game. You're going to talk about your pat. No, you're going to talk about what's most important. And first of all, it's his love that he has for Timothy and Christ because of the gospel, the gospel gift, what holds them together. And then he moves on to remind him, okay, the gospel calling. What is this gospel calling? And that's part of the gospel gift. Each one of you, if you are a child of God, you have a calling from the Lord that he has given to you before the foundations of the world. He knows you. He loves you. As he said to Jeremiah before, you were knit in your mother's womb. I knew you. Okay? And he has a calling for you, that you would be a child of God. And the reason we're here is that you would be a bright light for the gospel until Christ comes again. And that's when you're broken to the point where your good days are your bad days. Okay? It is a gospel calling, and it is our primary calling, more than being a husband, a wife, a co-worker, all of those different things that we esteem. Those things are important, but more important is your calling to be a child of God. A child of the gospel. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, for the purpose of this evening, you can see that there's really two points. He begins the first half, okay, verses 1 through 9 with gospel opposition. Okay, you have this calling. This is who you are. Here's where the pushback's going to come. Until Christ comes, you're going to receive hate and you're going to receive opposition by people who profess to be all of these things, including being a Christian, outer forms of godliness, but here's what's really going on in the inside. They're lovers of self, they're lovers of pleasure, and they don't love God. But this is an opportunity for them in the local church to do their thing. And you, if you're going to stand with Christ, you're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. They're going to hate you for it because you're going to show them up because you're the real deal, Timothy. And you're going to get pushback from them and they're going to attack you and they're going to say, this is why we're right and this is why you're wrong. And there's going to come times where when you're tired, you're weak, you're stretched thin, you're going to start to second guess yourself. Did I really do it the right way? Is there a better method? Ricardo recently told me, he said, before I went to this missions conference, he said, I was so discouraged. He said, I was preaching the gospel to people. He says, Mark, I probably have spoken to hundreds of people sharing the gospel in Colombia. You know, we've been on the streets, we've done everything, and it just, we're waiting for the Holy Spirit to work. And when he went to that missions conference, the leaders of the mission conference pulled him aside, and they said, listen, don't be tempted into looking for another method. You need to trust in the word of God. God has a path for you, He is true. He is faithful. His word is true. Christ has died. His death on the cross is sufficient. Don't, just because it's not working out fast enough, start to switch and think there's another way to get this done because there's only one way. It's Christ and his word. It's the gospel. And for all of you here who are single, okay, you know how it works and how it rolls. Julie talks to me about this all the time for single gals, okay, but single guys too. You wait you're faithful, you come to church, you serve in the church, it doesn't happen, okay? The options aren't great, and then you start to second guess, your parents start to speak into your life, well, maybe if, 
you did A, B, C, D, and E. Maybe if you considered, maybe if you went in the blind date with so-and-so, maybe all of these different compromises, and we look at all the different ways that there's another method for you to have a successful and good life. Right? And that's true in ministry, and that's true in parenting. Struggling with your kids. Well, maybe if you just did this a different way, your kids would be closer to Jesus. Hey, there's one way. The Holy Spirit saves people. Jesus died on the cross. His word makes us wise for salvation. It ain't going to happen any other way than praying for your kids and being a testimony for the gospel. And if God chooses not to do it and you've been faithful, you put your head in the pillow and say, even so, come Lord Jesus. This is in your hands, right? And yet we sort of give each other a hard time, right? kids aren't saved or their kids aren't, maybe they did, should have done a better job. Maybe they should have sent their kids to Christian schools. Maybe they should have homeschooled their kids. And what do we do when we go down that path, when parents have been faithful? We trample on the gospel. We say Jesus wasn't enough. Reading the Bible studies wasn't enough. And Paul's saying, hey, the good news is in the word of God. And that's the second portion of Chapter 3. First is gospel opposition. The second portion is gospel provision. Gospel provision, what is it? It's a Christ-centered life. That's what the second half is about. Timothy, what is it that sustains? It's a life that comes out of the gospel. And it's a life that comes out of the gospel and is connected with Christ. Why is this the power, the sustenance, the provision for the Christian life? Because it's a life that comes from the word of God. The same God who created the world in six days by his word. The same God who rules all things by his word. The same God whose word changes things sharper than a two-edged sword. My word will not return to me void. His word is authoritative. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It is sufficient. And that is the basis upon which you stand. That's chapter 3. And then finally, chapter 4 is gospel triumph. Gospel triumph, where Paul writes out, hey, I'm finishing the race well. I'm going to die, but my life is being poured out as a drink offering, and I'm winning, and there's a crown that's waited, waiting for me. I know in whom I've believed. I've been faithful to the race. I have not swerved. From the world's point of view, I'm a loser, but from Christ's perspective, I know exactly what's waiting for me. Okay, So he's walking him through the gospel life from beginning to end, reminding him why it's valuable, what's at stake, and what's pushing back at him. Okay, And that's what chapters 3 is about. And that brings us to 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Could I have that slide, my next slide, please? Okay. This is all about a command. I know there's a lot of information up there, but this is the passage, okay? But it starts with the words, but as for you, continue. And that word continue is a command, non-optional. It's a command from Christ through the Apostle Paul. The word that he uses for continue is a Greek verb, mene. It's the same one that Jesus said in John 15 when he told his disciples to abide in him. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide, continue. It's this dynamic. It's not just staying in one place. It's being connected to Christ. You need to continue to be connected to Christ. And guess what? Christ is moving. Christ is building his church. You need to continue to walk with him. Okay? Not veering to the left. You need to walk holding our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's hand, Timothy. Okay, that's what this whole section is about. And so when it begins with that command, that's the primary command, and everything that comes after is supporting this command. Why do you continue? Okay, because this is what he had learned and firmly believed. This is the gospel doctrine and faith. Okay, this is what comes from Christ. From Christ, Christ has taught him, and Christ has given him a faith. It is anchored in the word of God. Okay, knowing from whom you learned it. So he goes gospel living that's built upon gospel doctrine or teaching and faith, not one without the other. We believe in Christ. It is based on the doctrine of the gospel. So you've got gospel living. If there's no gospel doctrine and faith, you're not going to have gospel living. And you're going to see how this moves. It moves from gospel living to gospel doctrine and faith. 
knowing from whom you learned it, the Apostle Paul and his, his mother and his grandmother, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The sacred writings. So he's saying what it is. What is scripture? It is the sacred writings. The holy writings. Okay? That this doctrine and this gospel is not just some guy who's getting up and peddling a cult or peddling, hey, this is a way to get ahead. This is based on the word of God that has come from the mouth of God. It is true. It is all of these things. This is what the gospel stands on. When you look at Jesus, what makes Jesus different from all these other cult leaders in the history of the world who are running around, even in Judaism? Every aspect of Jesus' life is completely consistent with the word of God. There's no aspect of his life that you can look at that is not a fulfillment of God's word that is complete, 100%, the word of God. He is the living word of God. Okay? And he talks about the sacred writings, what it is. These writings are sacred. They're holy. They're set apart for the Lord. Now that word sacred in Greek is the word hieros. Okay, from which we get the word hero. Okay, and not the sandwich that you eat. The Greek hero. Okay, and the Greek hero were men like Hercules, the demigods. They were set apart or claimed by the gods. Okay, now that's the Greek language. In scripture, it's referring to writings that are claimed by God. They belong to God. They're set apart from God. What sets apart the Bible? Okay, these are the writings that have been set apart by God to do his work. Okay? So he says what it is and what it does. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. The power of the gospel. This is Romans 1, 16 through 17. God's word has power, Timothy. It works differently from the way the powers of the world work with lots of fireworks and lots of bang. But nonetheless, it has power to save men. And so we see what it is. Sacred writings. The, that writings that do the work of God. And what is the work of God? Why is he given it? To make you wise to lead you to salvation. Through what? Faith in Christ. And you see that faith in Christ is in the middle of this sandwich. Okay? That the whole focal point and the whole use of Scripture is not to get you a seminary degree, not to be able to answer all of Pastor Mark's trivia. At the end of the day, there's one purpose. It's to grow your relationship to Christ. It's to open your eyes to see who he is. It's to enable Christ. He doesn't need to be enabled, but it's Christ's means. It's what he has to pour his love into your life. How does he choose to do that? Through his word. Okay, And the end of this, the purpose of all of this, is your intimacy and your relationship with Christ, your faith in Christ. And then he goes from there and says, all scripture is breathed out by God, what it is again, inspired, coming out from the mouth of God, right? And profitable for teaching what it does. So what it is, the words that are breathed out from the mouth of God, what it does, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Doctrine and discipline. Doctrine and discipline. To teach you what is true, and to teach you about your Lord and Savior, and what He expects of you, but also to train you, and to show you and teach you how to do it. How do you be a godly mother? How do you be a servant helper to encourage your husband to walk with the Lord? How do you be a co-worker who points someone to Christ. It ain't going to happen without the word of God. But here's the other side. You should go to seminary if you can and get as much education as you can. But if you have the gospel, you are competent to counsel. You are in a position in any circumstance or situation to point someone to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It trains you for righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Gospel living. So Paul starts with gospel living. He goes to doctrine and belief. He shows what it's based on. The word of God, the power behind the gospel is God's word. 
He shows you what it's all about. It's our relationship with Christ. And then he works his way back out. This is what it is. This is what it does. And ultimately, God's word through faith in Christ brings you to a place of godly living where you're pleasing to the Lord. Not in some things, but every aspect of your life. Now, if I was to ask you, how many of you want to be pleasing to the Lord in every aspect of your life? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, right? But you get where I'm going with this. And Paul's encouraging Timothy and he's saying, look, everything you need to be pleasing to the Lord, you already have. You have Christ in your heart. You have him as your king and savior. He's interceding on your behalf and he's given you his word, which is what saved you in the first place and changes the world. And we think about that. We celebrate it. When we get saved, we're so excited. We're so thrilled. We're hungry for the word of God. And then we go along and we become excellent at church and we forget what was it that saved us in the first place. And if it was good enough to save us, isn't it good enough to guide what our worship should be? Isn't it good enough to guide and make the decisions of how ministry should be run? Isn't it good enough to show us how we're to love our husbands and how we're to love our wives and how we're to shepherd our children? then why do we run after all of these other things, including many Christian books, looking for answers when we have everything we need? And many times those, you know, the whole, listen, Christian book industry. Now, there are good books, you need them. But how often do they prey on a fear that we're missing out, our inadequacy, or that there's some truth that we're missing that we'll find, that will make our lives better if we have it. Now, you should read Christian books. But they shouldn't be a substitute for God's word on a daily basis, right? If we were stuck on a desert island, if we were put in a prison camp, and we didn't have Amazon and all those books, and we didn't have access to our phones and our blogs, would Christ's word be enough? And the Apostle Paul says, well, it's more than enough there. Why is it not more than enough in every aspect of your life? Can I have my next slide, please? Thank you for bearing with me. I'm going to try and tie up. When we look at Paul's view of Scripture, it's outlined in this passage. And this is why this passage really becomes a a proof text for the authority of Scripture. But as you walk through, you see that the Apostle Paul views this as the very power of God in his life. And it's also the source of great encouragement to Timothy. He viewed the Old Testament writings as scripture, but he also viewed, you know, he makes mention of portions of the gospel, the gospel of Luke and other portions of, that are used in the gospel. He mentions them as scripture, even at this early date. He viewed his own words as he writes, as you go through and you look at those texts, as the very word of God that's coming from him. He viewed the words of the apostles, those who stood for Christ, okay? The 11 men who were disciples minus Judas and those who were appointed to whom Jesus showed himself, who Jesus commissioned, that these are speaking the very words of God that come out of the breath of God and that are being written by men, where God used their personalities, their characters, their ancestry, their family, supernaturally, superintending sovereignly to provide a perfect word for us. Were they perfect men? No. But was the word that they gave us perfect? Yes, because it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is how Paul viewed the word of God. And it comes down to this. Scripture is the Holy Spirit's primary instrument in your salvation, in your sanctification, and in sustaining every aspect of your Christian life. The primary instrument, living and sharper than any two-edged sword. Can I have my next slide, please? So it comes back to the statements I made at the beginning. Hopefully this is an encouragement for you. You're all facing challenges in different aspects of your lives. And the temptation when we face challenges, I was talking with some men over dinner tonight, our our, our temptation is, especially as guys, we want to fix things. We want to be the Savior. What's the problem? You know, we're talking, I was sharing, you know, my temptation is not to listen 
I asked Julie, how can I be a better shepherd, Julie? I asked all the elders, go talk to your wives and ask how we can be better shepherds. And Julie graciously said to me, Mark, you need to be a better listener. Okay, and what a great, what a great thing for my wife to say to me. And she's absolutely right, praise God. Servant helpers, that's the way you help us is you show us the ways that we fall short. Okay, and that listening begins with listening to the Lord first. If we can't listen to the Lord, we can't listen to one another. And then to listen to the other people in our lives. And as we consider the challenges that come in our lives, that come fast and furious, the propensity in our lives is to listen to every other voice except the Lord. Right? That's the tempted. That's our flesh. That's our pride. There's a better way. There's something we need to do. Or, as guys, I can fix this problem. I can fix this. I can fix this. But as we become Christians, what is it that has fixed our lives? That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's fixed a problem in our life that is far bigger than anything else, our sin problem. He's come in and he's healed us. He's released us from the curse. He's become our king and ruler. He's set us free and he's made us free to live for him according to his word. And what powers that life is his love in our life. It is the love of Christ. And Paul says, you know, what is the hope of glory? It's Christ in you, right? And Christ has put that together for us so that we can be reminded on a regular basis and so that we have it in our hands in the word of God. It is powerful. It is God's gift to us to sustain us and to grow us and to help us. And so when we face those challenges like Timothy rather than waver, rather than be afraid, will we remember that God has given us everything we need in Christ, His Spirit, and His Word? And will we go to Him first and allow Him to be the loudest voice in our lives? Okay, we have to fight that battle because our flesh and our pride pulls us in a different way. And the take-home really, in a nutshell, do you spend time on a daily basis, hearing from Christ how he loves you. Right? Now, wives are here, right? Would it drive you nuts if you went for a month and you never heard from your spouse that your spouse loves you? Sure, right? Be a bit of a downer. Okay? Well, the Lord has provided a way and his primary way of telling you about his love for you. And that love, sometimes it includes, same way Julie's telling me, hey, Mark, you need to be a better, that's her love for me, right? She's showing that there's food in my teeth, right? Well, the Lord's love for you to train you in righteousness, to show you areas that maybe have been there for a season, that need some correction, areas that you're starting to veer off, Okay, and lovingly he's telling you, you need to walk a little closer to me in this area. All of those things. Well, he's given that to us, brothers and sisters, in his word. And we would be foolish not to listen to it. Now, we have to fight for that. Right? I tell all the young men what I've learned from the Lord in my marriage because this is what Christ has done for me. Christ has pursued me. There are times where he's disciplined me. There are times where he's gotten after me and gotten my attention. There's times where he's afflicted me so that I would come back to his word, so that I would pray. But he pursues me in love because he loves me and he's a gracious father and he doesn't let me get too far and he goes after me. And in turn, men, we need to pursue our wives, not badger them, not give them a hard time. We need to be intentional in pursuing them in love. That's what the Lord calls us to do because that's what Christ has done for us. That's the gospel. The gospel is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? And similarly, ladies, if you're married, you need to pursue your husbands in love, okay? It's a different pursuit. It's a servant helper pursuit, but nonetheless, there's a pursuit in that way. When it comes to the scriptures, Christ does pursue us. But as servant helpers, we would be foolish not to pursue him as well. When we don't pursue, 
we wander and we stray. And I told my boys this today. I said, what would it be like if dad went away on a business trip for a month and I never talked to mom? Things would be pretty cold when I got home. I'll tell you that much, right? And so you look at that and you just say, okay, we have to fight for this. Our flesh is against it, but we have to fight for what's there and we have the power to do so from the Spirit of God and from the Word of God because that's what gives us strength. In the endeavor and in the fight and the battle, it is just critical. And when we don't fight for it, yes, that means it's hard. Yes, that means it's a sacrifice. Yes, that means sometimes we suffer. The same way you stay up at night and you take care of sick children and you're tired and exhausted and it's brutal and you wake up the next day and you're devastated, but do you do it out of love for your children? Absolutely you do. When we don't roll out of bed for our kids when they're sick at night, what does that say about our relationship? And I'm saying this by way of warning. When there is not a desire to spend time with Christ in his word and in prayer, it says that a heart has gone cold or a heart doesn't have Christ at all. It's a danger of those two things, right? And there's a remedy for that. What's the remedy? You run to Christ in repentance and you come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I haven't honored you and loved you in the way you've loved me. Please forgive me for this and please help me. And you cling to Christ as much as you can. And he says that those who the Father sends to him and who come to him, he will by no means cast away. So this text, I believe, is meant to call Timothy and to warn him and to urge him on. Rekindle that flame of the love for Christ by clinging to Christ and walking in the truth of God's word. Hold precious the word of God. It's his primary instrument in keeping you close. And this is the exhortation for you all. This is what it's meant to be. And I hope that it's an encouragement to you that everything that you need to walk in Christ's love, he's given you in his word. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for Timothy. Thank you for his struggles, of which were the benefit. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the love that he showed Timothy and the love that you show us. Lord Jesus, you have loved us so much. You have fixed us and you have healed us of the greatest thing that we have a problem with, which is our sin and our pride and our, our idolatry. I just pray, Lord Jesus, would you help us to fight this battle in pursuing you through your word, that we would just abide in you and continue with you, and that we would take the time on a daily basis to sit down and to read your word and to listen to you and to hear the ways in which you love us and you've equipped us for your work and that you desire to pour into us. In your name we pray, amen.